it came down to a simple fact. Did I want to spend three years in prison or three weeks in prison? Oh, hello. Welcome back to the Wild Business Growth Podcast. This is your place to hear from a new entrepreneur every single Wednesday morning who's turning wild ideas into wild growth. I'm your host, Max Brandstetter, founder and podcast producer at Max Podcasting. And you can reach me at max at maxpodcasting.com to save time with your high-quality podcast. This is episode Bacardi 151, and today's guest is best-selling author John Warlow. He is, of course, the iconic best-selling author of Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer, and The Art of Selling Your Business. He also hosts a phenomenal podcast, Built to Sell Radio, and he has founded and exited at least four different companies, and his current company is the Value Builder System, which is just awesome. In this episode, we dove into selling your business, setting up a subscription-type service, the art and science, but mainly art of selling your business, and some fantastic analogies, which really will just make you feel like a kid in a candy shop. It is Dear John Warlow. Enjoy the show. Alrighty, we are here with John Warlow, the amazing best-selling author, creator of the Value Builder System, Awesome dude. John literally had a recent guest, Unprovoked, bring you up and, and bring up your book, Built to Sell, out of nowhere. So this is this is a dream come true. Thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? Good, good. Doing great. Really, really excited to dig into you know your your trilogy of books and how you've approached a a really cool kind of area for business owners that are are looking to sell or looking looking to get their business to be sellable one day. Of course, we're going to talk lots and lots about business. So naturally, I want to ask you about something that has absolutely nothing to do with business. <laughs> if you had not gotten into the business world at all, what do you think you would be doing? You know, I probably would be, I would be something in the media. I was, as a kid, I was fascinated by 60 Minutes. I used to watch it and I loved it when Mike Wallace, the old you know, grizzled reporter, would put somebody on the grill and like absolutely skewer them. Like it was like some used car dealer who was rolling back the odometer or, you know, like some, somebody who's doing something nefarious and he would be the one fearlessly going after the, the person. And I used to love that. And so I actually went to university for communications and, and realized that uh, it was a tough way to make a living, but, but I think I'd probably be doing that if I wasn't doing what I'm doing today. Are you envisioning like a, uh... 65 minutes starring John Warlow, like your own TV show. <laughs> what do you what do you envision that would look like? It's so funny because I've sort of come full circle. And someone pointed this out, an old mentor of mine kind of pointed this out to me uh, recently. My first business, this goes back 25 years ago or more, scary, was a radio show that I got nationally syndicated up in Canada. It was called Today's Entrepreneur. I interviewed a different entrepreneur every day for three straight years. And now the majority of my time I spend on something called Built to Sell Radio, which is a podcast where I interview entrepreneurs about their, the sale of their business. So like literally 25 years on, 
I've gone full circle and continue to kind of interview, in this case, instead of used car dealers, entrepreneurs about their exit. <laughs> there you go. It all goes back. I'm a big fan of this as well, obviously, but there's something really special about interviewing entrepreneurs. So I think it's, you know, whether you're in business or media or, or business media, it's, it's a good path. So I feel you there. Well, the stories are just so, they're full of human drama, right? Because business ownership crosses not only business topics, but also the human condition. And I think they're just, you know, full of just incredible, incredible stories. So I love, I love hearing from other entrepreneurs and their stories. John W., the king of the drama. (laughs) So let's get to some of that entrepreneurial drama. And your best-selling trilogy of books, I want to hit on some of the lessons from each of the three of these. Let's start with Built to Sell which obviously is about building your business. You dive deep into kind of positioning yourself to to get yourself out of the company, either somewhat or fully one day, if that's your aspirations. But Built to Sell, where did your interest from your own experience of kind of removing yourself from some of the day-to-day stuff, some of the more, some of the hands-on stuff in the business world, where'd that come from in the first place? came from a, a market research business I used to own years ago now. It was a quantitative market research business. We sold to big, big companies, right? Bank of America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase. And we built it up to, I don't know, something like somewhere between 5 and $6 million in revenue. It was profitable, 20 30% profit margins. So I was kind of walking around town thinking I had this really valuable asset. And I, I remember coming to the decision that I was going to sell the company. And I went to see a guy named Perry Miele. Perry is an M&A guy, mergers and acquisition professional in, in Toronto. I said, Perry, what do you think it's worth? And I kind of rubbed my hands together, expecting the number. And, and he said, well, let me before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's figure out a couple of things. Number one, who does the research? And I was like, well, like I, I got to be involved in some of the research. I mean, it's like, well, it's Fargo. It's Bank of America. I've, I've got to be part of the research. And he's like, all right, well, who does the selling? I said, well, it's Wells Fargo. Of course, I've got to go do the selling, right? And he said, okay, let me get this straight. You've got a research business. You do the selling, you do the research. And I could feel the, <laughs> the hair on the back of my neck going up. And he, I'm like, yeah. And he said, John, there's... I can't sell your company. There's, there's nothing to sell. It's worthless. Max, I, I can't tell you the, the feeling that that left me with. It was just brutal, right? Because I'd walked into that meeting on cloud nine thinking I had this great asset and I left realizing I had a ton of work to do. And that's what sort of got me really curious about, okay, if, I, if it's not profitability and it's not revenue and it's not a client list, then what is it? And I came to realize that, you know, what we needed to do is create recurring revenue. We needed to you know, build a sales team, get me out of doing a lot of the work and all the selling. And ultimately the company was acquired by a New York Stock Exchange listed company years later. So it had a happy ending. But I think that moment in Perry's office is what kicked off for me, this kind of lifelong journey of trying to understand, okay, well, what does drive the value of a company? What do acquirers want? And ultimately it, it led me to, to write the book, Built to Sell. When you look at, the ways that you can kind of take a step back and and start working more on the business as opposed to in the business. What's your personal favorite technique? I think documenting your processes is not sexy. It's important. It's one of those things where I think it was described to me recently. I, I did an interview 
uh, I built this already with a woman named Jody Cook who sold her company and she was determined not to have an earnout. And an earnout, Max, you probably know, is, is where a portion of the sale of your company is put at risk. Usually it's a three-year time frame, can be as much as seven years, but it's 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 when an acquirer says, I'm not sure that this company is going to continue to succeed once the owner leaves. So we're going to put a big chunk of the of the proceeds at risk in this earnout, and we're going to make them kind of work for it. And this is what Jody wanted to avoid. She built a, a marketing agency and she was desperate to get out cleanly. And so one of the things she did was early create processes. I asked her on the podcast, I was like, but Jody, I mean, that for an entrepreneur who thrives on doing fun stuff and you know, creating, I mean, like that sounds like the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> like, how did you get yourself to do that? And she said, it came down to a simple fact that I want to spend three years in prison or three weeks in prison. And I said, tell me more. And I said, well, an earnout is like a prison sentence for an entrepreneur, right? Where you're working for somebody else. You can't, you don't have your own discretion. You've got to get everything approved by a boss. Whereas a three-week prison sentence is writing your SOPs. Does it suck? Absolutely. But if given the choice of spending three weeks or three years, I'd rather take the three-week deal. So look, I think that's one of the things that's, again, it's not a sexy recommendation. Michael Gerber in the book, The E-Myth, talked about it ad nauseum. But it is critical to building, I think, a business that can thrive without you and getting out cleanly. And here I was thinking that she had a prison business. But that's <laughs> I'm all for the power of analogy. So that's amazing. And I think a lot of times when you're in the thick of it and when you're more on the doer side, you can tend to kind of keep pushing things off or be so swamped with kind of like the next task that you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really have time for that. But if you take that long-term, that long-run approach, maybe even imagine it as a prison sentence, this is like the effects of what you're doing. I, I think it's a phenomenal way of looking at things. Yeah, it's, it's also, I think, philosophical about how do you run a company? Like, you know, for a lot of people, in particular in the United States, where there's this sort of ethos about maximizing top line revenue, there's the Inc. 5000. I think those are all wonderful awards and, and great things to get. Yet, I think they place perhaps too great an emphasis on top line revenue growth at all costs. And what I mean by that is I think the most important job of an entrepreneur is ultimately to build a company that doesn't depend on them. I, I use the analogy, a lot of people listening to this are parents, right? Some people want their kid to go to Harvard, want their kid to play football at Auburn or whatever. For most parents, they don't want these massive goals for their kids. They want their kids to be successful, independent adults. And I think if more people thought of their business as a child, where the main goal is not to create the next Tesla, it's actually to create a company that can thrive without you. And instead of thinking of yourself as you know, the, the chief salesperson for your company, instead think of yourself as like the parent. Sometimes a parent's job is not to take center stage, it's actually to get the company to live on its own. And I think that's just philosophically, I think what Jody did in building those SOPs is just an example of like taking a very parental sort of approach to thinking of her role as the, as the parent or the, you know, the, the caretaker of her company as opposed to the CEO. So we have think of your business as a prison, think of your business as a child. So <laughs> the moral of the story is your business is a juvenile detention center. I think when you exactly. combine both of those worlds. I think you're getting the point, I think you're getting the point well. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm for just analogies on analogies. Let's keep going. But <laughs> that's a pretty big mindset shift to think about your business that way. What's your favorite way to 
keep that mindset and think of your business like a child. I mean, I think that the essence is you've got to get your employees to do the thinking on their own. And I'm a big fan of the yesable solution. And the yesable solution is, is when an employee comes to you and says, oh my gosh, um, you know, Mr. Smith is angry. Uh, we shipped his product late. I don't know what to do. Right? That's when they're taking the problem that is sitting in their lap and they're putting it in your lap as the business owner. By contrast, the Yesable solution is basically pushing back on employees who do that and say, listen, I'm, I'm happy to support you. I'm happy to, to provide you direction. But what I ask is that when you come to me with a problem, you frame it with a question I can answer yes or no. And I want you to go away and think about Mr. Smith's problem and come back to me and give me a couple of solutions. Think, tell me what you've thought through in the way of possible solutions to Mr. Smith's problem. And tell me if you were the owner, what you would do and ask it in a way that I can simply say yes or no. So the way that employee comes back, instead of saying, oh my gosh, Mr. Smith has a problem. What am I going to do? They say, okay, Mr. Smith has a problem. He's angry. I've thought about giving him a discount, refunding the product and giving him a rebate on another product. I think we should give them a rebate on another product. Are you okay with that? To which you as the owner can simply answer yes or no. And I think that forces a change in your employees' behavior. It forces them to think like an owner and present solutions to you to simply say yes or no to. And nine out of 10 times, you know the answer to this, Max. I'm sure you've seen it in your own business. Employees figure it out. And they give you a, you know, they give you a solution and the, the, the suggested recommendation is almost always what you would do, but it just forces them to take ownership. And I think, again, if the goal is to get your business to thrive without you and get your employees to act like owners, I think the yesable solution can be a, a cool little tactic. I love the yesable. It makes me think back of when I started out my career in the corporate world. And obviously I've changed up quite a bit since then, but I remember like, the bosses and like senior leaders at that company would always say, it wasn't just like one person, like everybody said this was come to me with answers, not with problems, come to me with solutions, not problems. And that's the, that's the same sort of thing is you can do it. You can really lean on your team and you know, whether that's employees or virtual assistants, freelancers, whoever you're working with to do a lot of the, a lot of the groundwork there. And speaking of some issues that, come up or, or ways to smooth things out. Your next book, The Automatic Customer, is super key on hitting on subscriptions and making things, you know, we use the term productizing, shout out uh, Tyler Gillespie, who's been on the podcast before. There's a lot that you can do, even if you're in a service business, even if you're in a business that you think you can't really, that doesn't really lend itself to subscribers, but it actually does. Where along your journey did this interest in creating a subscription service is a huge factor in growing and potentially selling your business one day? You know, it, it probably comes back to that original research company we talked about earlier. One of the things that we learned in trying to transform that business from an unsellable business into a, into a company that was acquired by a, a public company is that Recurring revenue is like the secret sauce for most acquisitions. If you can show 
the acquire that your business is on some sort of annuity stream, some sort of service contract. It just makes it that much more valuable because acquires view it as that much more reliable. I think it's incredibly important. And again, for a lot of entrepreneurs, they hear that and they think, yeah, but I'm not a software company. What am I going to do? How how would I create recurring revenue? And I think I usually tell them the story of H. Bloom because I think it tries to, I think in in an acute way, allays that concern and gets them to open their mind that even if a retail store can create recurring revenue, they can. So the story of H. Bloom is, is that H. Bloom is a flower business. If you know anything about selling flowers, it's a terrible business model, right? Like I was going to say, no, no, I, I know nothing about selling flowers, but no, <laughs> I'll take your word okay. for it. I, I learned about it through H. Bloom, but it's a terrible business model. Like, so half of the typical flower store's inventory gets chucked out every single month because the owner guesses wrong. They buy the wrong number of roses and not enough Gerber daisies, whatever. Half the inventory goes in the garbage. Two days, Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, make up 30% of the revenue of a typical flower store. So you're left 363 days a year trying to find business, right? So how do you do that? Well, you get really expensive retail square footage, right? Where you're spending a truckload to rent space to try to intercept some guy on his walk home from work. He forgot to buy flowers for his wife on his anime. I mean, it's a terrible business model. Along come these guys, Panda and Burkhart. And they're like, I want to sell flowers, but they want to do it on subscription. And so they go out and they look at all the different types of people that buy flowers, you know, weddings, funerals, graduations, whatever. And they discovered there's this tiny little segment, less than 3% of all people, all the flowers purchased in America are bought by hotels because they want to kind of create that boutique image on their reception table. And they think, well, hold on a second. These guys need flowers on a recurring basis, right? Because flowers die. And so they sell a subscription to hotels for flowers. Every two weeks, they get rid of the old ones and bring a new pair, a new, uh, a new bouquet. Typical average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber is more than $4,500. H. Bloom throws out less than 2% of its inventory compared with more than a half at a typical flower store. Which company would you rather own? The flower store or H. Bloom? I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling, but it's the difference between a transaction business model and a recurring business model. And so, look, I think the secret is to do what Brian Burkhart and Sandy Panda did, which instead of trying to create a subscription for all of your customers, which is inevitably going to create a diluted, crappy offering, what you want to do is segment your customers by buying trigger. Like, why do they buy from you? Because I think what you'll find is in the case of H. Bloom, they found that some people buy for weddings, some people buy for funerals, and some people buy because they want some a fresh cut bouquet of flowers for their reception table. It wasn't until they did the segmentation did they discover who would need their flowers on a recurring basis. So that's, I think, the first step is if any owner is sitting there saying that this doesn't apply to me, I'm not a software company, I would just encourage you to segment your customers by the reasons they buy from you. Come up with homogeneous buckets And then challenge yourself to think about, okay, which of these buckets has a need on some sort of regular cadence for what we sell? And that's, I think, the secret to creating your recurring revenue model. How do you get yourself to start thinking in terms of recurring revenue versus the other way? Because that's something that's totally different. And it's something that I think is really appealing. But again, when you're like in the day-to-day grind with your business, that might just feel like something that's not achievable. 
Maybe I think I think it comes down to kind of what are you doing? Are you are you are you walking on a on a on a treadmill or are you actually making progress? I think making progress is making a valuable company. It's creating something that has lasting transferable value. And I think just walking on a hamster wheel is ultimately really frustrating for a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think we have the right skills. Oftentimes we're selling the wrong product. What do I mean by that? Uh, years ago now, I guess 20 years ago, I was invited to be part of something called the Birthing of Giants, super pretentious name, I know. It was, uh, it was at the MIT Executive Education Center in uh, just outside Wait, I Boston. actually... Yeah, I've, I've heard about this in a separate you know podcast, but I won't spoil it. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I've no, already no, go said ahead. too much. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It was, uh, it's been rebranded as the Entrepreneurial Master's Program. Uh, but anyways, it, it was this 60 entrepreneurs, all of us sort of hard-charging, growth-oriented entrepreneurs were invited to this thing. And again, this goes back 20 years. I, you know, we got a chance to hear Jack Stack talk about employee ownership, Pat Lynchoni talk about leadership. And in walks this guy named Watkins. I can't remember his first, Stephen Watkins, I think his first name is. And he just sold his company. And he walked in and said, okay, how many of you guys are involved in selling your product or service? And like all of us, like seven-year-old kids in, in, in grade two, like put, put our hands in the air, kind of proud of the fact that we were selling our product or service. And he said, okay, put your hands down. You've all got the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. You got to hire salespeople to sell your product. Your job as the owner is to sell your company, is to spend your days building the value of your company so that one day it's an asset as opposed to running on a hamster wheel. I've never forgotten the feeling of me sitting in that amphitheater, realizing that there was another game. It's like the kid watching an NBA game and realizing even though they play basketball that they're there's a totally another level. And for me, that was that meeting. It was that if your goal is just to run on a treadmill, sell your time, sell your hours, have a transaction business model like a typical flower store, you're not building anything of value. Your goal and your job as the entrepreneur is to build the value of your, of your company, not sell your product. And so that for me has always resonated. And it was, uh, I recall that day like it was yesterday. And that was a phenomenal segue. I will send your check in the mail ASAP for that. But your latest book, The Art of Selling Your Business, really dives into how to actually sell and like that one of the hardest things that entrepreneurs will come across. And obviously so much goes into it. You know, you could spend years focusing on the value and kind of positioning yourself that way. But when it comes to actually make the sale, that's something a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of small business owners still have no idea about. From your studies, from your research, from your own experience, what makes the difference between entrepreneurs that do sell their business one day and those that don't? Wow, that's, I mean, that is in effect the the essence of the art of selling your business. I do this podcast, couple of this already, I interview different entrepreneurs every week. We've done something like 300 episodes and I've seen firsthand the kind of unforced errors many owners make when selling their company. And they can literally take six, seven, eight figures off the value of their company just by something they said, a flippant answer. Um, I'm reminded of, do you remember, this goes back a while, but do you remember the guy uh, who landed the airplane on the Hudson River, Sully? Yeah, yeah, of course. You remember that guy? Yeah, so like yes. he was the most decorated pilot, you know, in, for the airline he flew for. I mean, he'd been flying for 40 years. He, he, was, he taught young pilots how to fly. I mean, he'd, he'd been trained on virtually every gear there is in 
in airline, and yet he'd never had the chance to land an airplane on the Hudson River. And for me, a lot of entrepreneurs are playing the role of Sully. Like they could talk to you all day long about click funnels and hiring employees and writing a business plan and like firing employees for that matter. But the process of selling a company is something we don't get the chance to rehearse. Like we got one shot to grease the landing. And if we screwed up, it's, you know, it can have lifelong impact. And so that, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is, is really to provide owners with the kind of inside baseball, the, the tips and tricks that you don't find out. You may not even hear uh, until it's too late. And there's a way to approach it. And I think it is more art than science that allows you to punch above your weight in selling your company. And that was, uh, that was the goal behind the book. It's definitely an art. I mean, some would say it, it's, it is the art of selling your business. Congrats, by the way, on the number of episodes. That's amazing. I think something every podcaster wants to keep doing it is, is striving for. But there's so many amazing stories. There's stuff you learn in every episode, every conversation. What would you say is the most common thing, like the rocket fuel that has charged and sent these entrepreneurs that have sold their business at way higher value than they probably ever anticipated? What's like the thing the rocket fuel that makes the difference and allow that to happen. The rocket fuel is competitive tension. Competitive tension is like M&A lingo for multiple offers at the same time. I'm cracking up because you use lingo and then you used an acronym right before lingo. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's all right. You know, competitive tension is what gives you the ability to punch above your weight effectively. I'll give you an example. So Arik Levy uh, had two exits, one really horrible one and another really amazing one. And the difference was that in the first exit, the one that went badly, he negotiated with one buyer. And when you, get a, when you negotiate with one buyer, usually the buyer finds out that you don't have competing offers. And what happens is they often do something called retrading, which is when they lower the price. And in Arik's case, he agreed to a price for his business out of the gate. But 60 days later, they're doing their due diligence. They come back to Arik and say, I know we were going to buy your business for X, but you know we've done a bit of digging and now we're willing to only buy it for X minus 20%. And Arik had at that time moved on in his mind. He'd sold his company. He told his spouse. He'd bought the lake house. Like in his mind, he had sold. And they know that. The other side knows that. And they use that against you. And so Arik took less money than he originally agreed to and ultimately ended up financing the seller or the buyer because they didn't come up with the cash to buy the business. I mean, it was a, it was a double whammy, a disaster of a situation. Anyways, years later, he went to sell a second company and I interviewed him about the sale of Luxor One. And I said, what was the difference? And he said, well, in the case of Luxor One, we had five competing offers. And what was interesting is the first round of offers were all within plus or minus 10% of each other. So there was a kind of a prevailing point of view or narrative about what his company was worth. But because he had multiple offers, the M&A professional representing Arik started to kind of play one off the other and got into this kind of cat and mouse game, ginning up all of the offers one at a time, playing them off each other. Ultimately, they were able to triple the value of his company through this bidding war, this horse trading. And that's really the difference between, I think, having one offer, 
which is almost a recipe for retrading versus having multiple offers, which is the jet fuel for punching above your weight. And Arik, interestingly, has lived both sides of the equation. So I think he right. provides a great example. He does. He does. And what it's rocket fuel, jet fuel. I like jet fuel. It's easier. I should have gone with that in the first place. If you are looking for the rocket fuel, damn it. If you're looking for the jet fuel for your business and you're looking for a clever way to market your business creatively, to connect with other business owners, to reconnect with clients, think about starting a podcast. Podcast is a phenomenal tool from a networking standpoint. From a marketing standpoint, it can do so much for your business, but it does take tons of time. I'm talking at least 2,000 pounds of time. If you're interested in starting a podcast for your business or your brand, but you know it's not in your best interest to spend all the time it takes behind the scenes to make it happen, to make it pop, email me at max at maxpodcasting.com. I will take at least 2,000 pounds off your shoulders. That I can't lift that much. I'll take a lot off your shoulders and help you save time with your high-quality podcast. Email me at max at maxpodcasting.com. Now... Let's slide into John's DMs, because why not? So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's get to a fan-favorite segment called the Wild Business Shoutout of the Week. The Wild Business Shoutout of the Week! Wild Business Shoutout of the Week. This is where we talk about a creative marketing campaign, something something clever and breakthrough that caught our attention. And there's something that Beast Gear did that's really, really, I guess, beast mode. Can you share what that was? Yeah. So Beast Gear was run by a guy named Ben Leonard, who I interviewed on Built the Radio a couple months ago. And he built this company selling essentially workout accessories. Think about like the straps you use when you're lifting heavy weights and belts and skipping ropes and all those kind of accessories. Anyways, he started with nothing. I think he borrowed 800 bucks from his dad and got a, like a half container of skipping ropes from China. Like it was really bootstrapped. And so he had no money for marketing, for advertising, for SEO, like nothing. And so what he did was he invited his customers to post their personal bests and tag Beast Gear on Instagram. And as soon as he saw a tag for Beast Gear, he went out and DM'd the athlete. And he said, man, congratulations on hitting your personal best on whatever squat. Uh, here's a $10 coupon for your next Beast Gear. Uh, congratulations. And they created a little bit of back and forth correspondence over DM. Well, by the time he built enough rapport, Ben would eventually get around to asking, hey, would you consider doing a quick review on Amazon for Beast Gear? Of course, by that time, he had tremendous kind of relationship capital with the athlete. And more often than not, they would do it. Well, long story short, by the end, Ben had thousands of Amazon ratings. 90% of his business was bought and sold through Amazon, ultimately got his business acquired. And when I asked him about it, he said, and I said, like, why did, like, were you personally doing that? He's like, yeah, in the early days, it was me. By the time, you know, as time went on, I hired virtual assistants to do it. But in the beginning, it was me. And I said, why did you do that? He said, because Nike wouldn't. Because Nike's run by a bunch of marketers in Oregon who are too big for their britches. They're too self-important. They would never stoop so low as to send a single DM to a lowly athlete when they hit a PR. And I did, and I would. And that's how he got his business off the ground. And it was, for me, one of those really crystallizing moments where you realize the difference between a manager and an owner. An owner takes ownership. An entrepreneur is someone who just does what it takes regardless of their station in life or whatever they perceive to be their status. 
the manager gets wrapped up and well, that's not my job. And that's like, that's just a different way of thinking. And I think Ben is so emblematic of what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur, in particular, when you don't have the cash for Nike to kind of invest in, in these marketing ideas. That is where the magic happens, like doing things differently and then adding that personal touch. Like as the world gets more and more connected and obviously you can do so much online, if you can still come across as being personal and genuine and like people know that it's you reaching out to them, uh, especially surprise and delight like that, I guess just to throw some other marketing jargon in there. <laughs> but that's a phenomenal example. I dig it. Let's wrap up with some rapid fire Q&A. You ready for it? Shoot. All right, let's get wild. Uh, first shot is... What is a quirk you have? Something unique about your personality that somebody calls you out for? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm a control freak. And my wife will laugh when she hears this because I try to control everything. <laughs> it, it, I, think there's a, I think it goes with business owner. I think that's a common thing here. <laughs> what is something about becoming a best-selling author that completely caught you off guard? All the spam I get looking for me to invest in their business or, you know, (laughs) it is quite a uh, a phenomenal uh, stream of emails I get on LinkedIn and other places. I get a lot of that. (laughs) And then what is your favorite creative hobby to unplug? Anything athletic. I, I love all the adventure sports. So... Uh, you know, snowboarding, uh, mountain biking, windsurfing. I love it all. Dig it. Awesome. The man, the windsurfing uh, magician of all sorts. I'm sure that's your official title. John, thank you so much for sharing your tips, your stories, everything you do, all you've learned yourself and researched and wrote books about and podcast. It just goes on and on and on. Wild listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Wild Business Growth Podcast. John has put together an awesome page for you. So if you go to builttosell.com slash wild, you can check out his eight key drivers video series for building your business to sell. You can grab an ebook that explains the nine subscription models, and there's a workbook for the art of selling your business. That's builttosell.com slash wild. If you're interested in hearing more wild stories like this one, make sure to follow the Wild Business Growth Podcast on your favorite app and tell a friend about the podcast. You can also find us on Good Pods with some good, good, good pods. And for any help with podcast production, you can learn more at maxpodcasting.com. Until next time, let your business run wild. Bring on the bongos! (laughs) 